Welcome back to the Off The X Podcast. My name is Cody. I am your host, and today's guest is retired Diplomatic Security Service Supervisory Special Agent Stephen Silva. Steve is the author of Afghans Never Smile, Reflections of a DSS Agent from Both Sides of the Duran Line. Steve had an awesome show producing tons of valuable information for security leaders, in-depth knowledge of his area of operation, but also the overarching geopolitics of the region, making command decisions that literally save lives and developing those impactful, long-lasting relationships that, well, made our diplomats safer. So listen in, very important, very good stuff, and I'll catch you all on the backside. Grateful you're here, and uh, if you like, I think we'll just run through your time in DS. Um, uh, you know, tell us maybe a little bit about what you did before DS, where you started, and, and a few stories along the way, right? And then uh, certainly the book stories, uh, as a few of them in there, I want to hear about. I think Peshawar okay. is a really interesting place, um, and uh, I, I want to, you know, don't give up the whole book though. People got to go get it, right? So, uh, <laughs> but yeah, man, let's go from there. I'll turn it over to you. All right. Well, I mean, I joined DS in 1999. Uh, prior to that, I was uh, I was an army officer, infantry officer in Germany, and uh, got out uh, in the early, got out in the early 90s, and then um, uh, worked in the private sector for a while. And then some guy came up to me, uh, and, and used to work at the U.S. State Department where I used, where I was working at the time. And there was an article, it was an advertisement in the Boston Globe for DSS agents and he said well your background you know I think you'd be interested in this and there was just something like that and you know so started the process in 1998 and uh, and of course um, the embassy bombings in August of 98 uh, probably accelerated my process and in January of 1999 I was offered a conditional offer and and then I, I went to Fletzy in uh, June of 1999 and um, went to the Washington field office. You know, my first assignment was at the Washington field office and we went on from there. Um, uh, after that, I was in the anti-terrorism assistance program for a couple of years. And then uh, from there, we went, I went to Algiers, which was a high threat post at the time. And the reason why I ended up becoming a high threat agent, if you will, it's because my youngest son had autism and we really, we really just couldn't get a post that would accommodate him. So, you know, um, that's kind of why, why my career took the turn it did. And I ended up, my overseas postings all ended up being high threat posts. So, so tell us a little bit about what you mean by a high threat agent for people that, that aren't familiar, uh, you know, how you can maybe live in one location in the U.S. and then uh, go basically go back and forth. Yeah, uh, like a high threat post is like there's there's certain uh, posts in the foreign service that are designated as as high threat because of because of the uh, threat to terrorism or anything along those lines. And there's a there's a finite number of those posts, and uh, uh, they're one year when you go to those posts or a one year uh, assignment, you usually get three R and Rs. When I first started in Algiers way back in 2003, you only got two R and Rs. Um, and you had to kind of use your own leave for that. Uh, so it was a little bit more, um, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't as appealing, you know, in terms of the pay and, uh, and those other, you know, things like leave and all that stuff. 
But after, you know, as time went along and we had the expeditionary diplomacy going on in Afghanistan. I am here to support, educate, other places, provide information. That's when they start. That's so when the State let Department me know how I can do that for you. And as always, have a, you know, I appreciate your you a support. Little bit of better Thank you. Um, benefits for, for going to these kind of places. So, uh, but, and that's, you know, what, what the, the major reason why I wrote the book is because, I mean, I, I've done a lot of things in DS and every DS agent's got stories. I know you've got stories. I get stories. We all sit around and talk. We all get stories. It, it's amazing to me, the things that we all do. I mean, the places we've all been, the experiences, but I wanted to focus on high threat because I just don't think that most people know, you know, who are the most deployed uh, federal agents in the United States federal government is the diplomatic security service. You know, um, even today, when you, when you look at TV shows, they have FBI International, which, which really kills me because <laughs> if they really want stories about federal agents overseas, then it should be about DSS, right? I mean, yeah. that's, that's my take on the whole thing. And, uh, I've been telling everybody that since that show has been released, I've been, anyone who will listen to me, I keep bringing that up. So, but um, that was the focus of my book. I wanted to let everybody, the, people know that we're out there every day protecting American lives in non-permissive environments, uh, in, in, in combat zones, in war zones, whatever you want to call it. And uh, I, I, you know, I wanted to educate the public in that sense. And also another thing I wanted to do was was highlight a couple of bosses that I had who are foreign service officers, um, because you know, government employees take a hit for being you know we're 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 in it for ourselves. We're lazy. We're you know, we're I mean there's a, we're the deep state. I mean you name it. We're something you know. And uh, but here were two women I wanted to highlight who were great bosses I've had and um, who are very courageous in their own right. Uh, the things they did. I mean if people knew about what these two women did, you know, as diplomats representing our country, they'd be, I think it's a pretty compelling story. So I wanted to get that out too. Yeah. Diplomats, so, not, not just DS folks. They, they certainly make their own sacrifices They you know, they, they do get, yeah. uh, they're going to diplomatic parties, et cetera, et cetera, but there's a, there's a lot of work involved and, and there are some bad places out there. They go to not just the high threat ones all, all over the world. There are plenty. Of right. Right. Yeah. I mean, like, um, you know, Karen Decker, one of the bosses I had, she was a senior civilian rep in Afghanistan. And um, I mean, she's only done pretty rough places. She started out in, in Pakistan and really cut her teeth in Sarajevo during, you know, the war in the 90s and so forth. And um, and then she's gone from there to Afghanistan. She's been to Afghanistan a number of times, spent two years at Bagram Airfield as a senior civilian rep. And then recently just did another stint as the deputy chief of mission in Kabul. So, I mean, I mean, you know, the woman is, you know, you got to give the woman credit. I mean, that's, you know, what, what can you say? I mean, that's, it's right there. Yeah. Uh, let's go back a little bit. High threat agent. So what you would do and, and correct me if I'm wrong is you had your family. So you did two, two posts, two assignments out in, in Washington DC area. So WIFO, which for listeners probably know by yeah, now, but to, Washington field yeah. office. And then ATA, wow. which we've talked about, uh, Adrian Diaz came on and talked about ATA a little okay, bit, yep. what they do. And yeah, Adrian's certain, a great guy. Yeah, yep, sure is. Um, and so, but, but you as a, w what you chose to do was basically leave your family in one location and go right. out for an assignment, which, correct me if I'm wrong, usually a one-year assignment. Was it still one year back then? 
Yeah, it was one year. My, so my first high threat assignment after ATA was, um, was Algiers. Okay. It's still considered a high threat post because um, we had the GSPC, the terrorist organization that had fought a bloody civil war with the Algerian government. Um, uh, most of the people that we worked with at, at the embassy in Algiers, most of the local Algerians had stories to tell about the, this bloody civil war where they lost family members. Um, uh, you know, everybody lost a family member. I remember I was at the Ministry of Finance with the ambassador and was talking to the head of security there. And he was telling me a story about how one night the GSPC hit his village and killed his whole family, except for his little sister who was hiding in the closet. So he had lost about, he's lost his mother, his father, and uh, uh, three or four brothers and sisters. But the one that survived was probably seven or eight years old at the time and was hiding in a closet. So the only reason why they didn't kill her, they didn't find her. So, and we talked to Algerians at that time, everybody had a story like that. So Algeria was coming, We were, when we were there, we, there was one more iteration of high threat agents after us. So we were kind of there as, as peace was starting to break out. We did have a few events in and around the, um, the embassy that took place. There was a terrorist cell in the city of Algiers that was taken out. Um, and it turned out that a friend of mine um, that I worked with who was doing security for the American pavilion um, in Algiers, I, I became friends with an Algerian special forces uh, team leader and, um, and we became friends just hanging out at that pavilion. He was helping provide security for us. And uh, I ran into him. He came to the 4th of July party and I asked him, hey, did you know anything about that terrorist cell? And he, he's like, yeah, um, I was the guy that led the team. I said, oh, well, what happened? He said, well, we found out where they were located because neighbors had reached out and said something weird was going on. And um, he said, we called the house at three o'clock they answered the phone. I gave them an hour to uh, to surrender. And at four o'clock, they were all dead. So I was like, okay. <laughs> you gotta love how they operate in some of these countries, man. It's like zero red tape. Just go, right, you know, <laughs> just just go through like, it. Okay, yeah. I mean, yeah. you can see us in our American society or whatever, there would have been a big, you know, the police, you had the FBI uh, hostage negotiator, right? Whatever, that kind of thing. It'd be all played out. No, they were like, you got an hour. Either you yeah. either you give up or we're coming in. And yeah, that's it, you know? And so that was their way of handling terrorism, you know? Yeah. So that was like my first, like, wow, okay. <laughs> I had a... So, uh... <clears throat> In, in Vietnam, I, I want to hear your stories, but this just brought up something to me in, in Vietnam. So it's, it's a little different there because communist country, they got to get approvals from everywhere, right? You can't make a decision on the ground, but especially right. if you're helping the Americans. But we were sitting out, uh, we had a lady, an American citizen call and say she was being held hostage by a, by a guy with a knife. Um, and, uh, and so we like, oh, okay, well, so we, we went out there, myself and another ARSO and our FSNI, and we weren't going to do anything. We we're just going to observe. Uh, just to be there to say we were there because the ambassador asked us. I was in I was in a consulate, right? So the ambassador asked us to go and oversee. And so we're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting for the Vietnamese to come. Don't you know two dudes that must have been 19 came in on a motorbike, zzz, <laughs> rolled up, <laughs> knocked on the door with their stick. The guy opened the door, he just grabbed them and pulled them out, and that was it. No guns, no <laughs> nothing, no, no kid. Got off on their motorbike. I think they held them there and someone came in a vehicle and threw them in there. It's like Jesus. Uh, yeah, and she was fine. She was a little over exaggerated what she was doing, but 
anyway, to your point, that was my first experience in like how they do things, uh, this type of, that's like police tactical yeah. type stuff and, and those right. kinds of things. Right. Yeah. I mean, a, a similar example to yours was, uh, I ran, I was in charge of the local guards in Algiers and, you know, the guard comes over and says, there's a package on the outside of the wall. And uh, it looks like it could be a bomb, you know, so we start doing all the, oh God, you know, we get everybody out from that side of the embassy. We go to the wall, we look over, it's like a little manila envelope. It's about, you know, I don't know, one foot by one foot maybe, you know, it's a, it's a manila envelope, it looks like a business. And um, okay, I guess we got to do it, the, you know, this, it could be something. And we call the Algerian police and then the uh, EOD team shows up and like this guy comes over and he's, He's dressed like in slacks and a short sleeve shirt. And he, he looks at the, he walks around the package. He looks at it, he kicks it. Cause I'm watching from a distance. He kicks it a couple of times and then he just picks it up and opens it up and looks in and he's like, no, it's okay. <laughs> I'm like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> but there you go. Yeah. That's so, crazy. Uh, anything yeah. wild happening in Algiers besides, besides uh, you saw you're on the back end besides them taking out that terror cell. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, we had, we, we did have a couple of bombings near the embassy, uh, but nothing, uh, you know, nothing crazy. Um, so, you know, it was, it, 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 you know, there was, there was some stuff going on, but nothing like that really impacted the embassy. I mean, I really didn't get, you know, a knee deep in this stuff, I guess you could say until I went to Peshawar in uh, 2006. Yeah. But I left Algiers and then I came back here. And I worked at the training center for two years and I ran the RSO training program, basically training up regional first time uh, assistant regional security officers. So I, I ran that training for two years. And then from there, I, I became a RSO in a shower in a 2006. Okay. So, well, let's get into that then. That's the, that's the meat of the book. <laughs> the, 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 the two assignments, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, Peshawar and Afghanistan. So you, you went in 2006. Um, uh, tell us about it. Tell us about, I mean, I, I read about your journey there and you having some drinks at an Irish bar and it's always a good way to. Yeah. You know, I mean, that was it. Calm you know, your nerves. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, you're in Dubai, this amazing metropolis, you know, the airport is incredible. I know you've probably been at that airport. I think, I think just about every DS agent probably has, but it's an amazing airport. It's huge. Everything's, you know, the modern amenities. It's, and then, and then, you know, so I'm sitting in, in this Irish bar, you know, yeah, like you said, like, okay, what do I got coming ahead of me here? You know, and um, August of 2006. And, uh, you know, I, I look at my, okay, it's time. I got to go down to the gate, you know, and as I get down there, I'm in the gate area and we get on a little bus that brings you out to the, to the plane and I'm the only guy wearing jeans and t-shirt, you know, everybody else is wearing shower camis. And I'm just like, you gotta be kidding me, you know? And then uh, we get out of that little bus and we're walking up to the, uh, into the plane and the, it was Pakistani International Airways, you know, great, great airline. <laughs> and the one flight attendant, she sees me, we lock eyes and it's like, she's like, oh God. And she comes running, running down the stairs and like basically brings me back up right to the front of the plane, you know, seat number one, you know, so I don't even know if that was my seat number. That's, that's where she sat me, you know, I guess I was in first class and we went from there and then we get off, we landed in Peshawar and it's dark, it's four o'clock in the morning. 
and uh, you know they, they usher me into the uh, the business class lounge, which really wasn't a business class. I don't know what you would call it, but that's what their version of business class was. And there was my the RSO that I was going to replace, and he's asleep. You know, I appreciated him coming to get me, but and we knew each other. And uh, anyways, I I you know I say his name, and he wake kind of looks at me like he doesn't even know who the hell I am. I'm like, oh Jesus, okay. So here we go, and yeah, uh, he, he ended up bringing me to the uh, to his house, and um, uh, he had a week to go. Uh, it wasn't the greatest of transitions. Uh, he had a lot of things going on, I guess, and I he he. I ended up taking the shuttle into the consulate that day and I met with my FSNI and I was pretty much glued with him for the next, for the rest of the year. You know, we pretty much did everything together. Um, a guy named Tarek Khan, um, just an amazing guy. Uh, uh, the things he did for us, for me at the embassy, at the consulate and, you know, for not just me, but for all the, uh, you know, the employees there. If you mention his name, everybody knows who he was. I mean, he, uh, former army officer, Lieutenant Colonel, um, so he was, my, he was my guy. He was my uh, sidekick, if you will, for the next year of my life, you know, um, and, uh, we, uh, we toured just about every inch of the Northwest frontier province, which now is known as Khyber Pashtunkwa. And, uh, we went through all the tribal areas except for North and South Waziristan. We went to Chitral, which is in the North, you know, the extreme Northwestern Pakistan on the Afghan border. And of course, we went into Swat Valley, which was overrun eventually by the Taliban. It was becoming overrun when we were there. And by the time I left it, it was completely overrun by um, Malana Fazlula, who was the guy, he was the, uh, the head of the TNSM, which, which was a terrorist group basically. And they ended up taking over you know, Swat in um, the next year, the year after I left. Wow. Uh, Let's go back. So FSNI, Foreign Service National Investigator. Um, right. Explain a little bit. Uh, I mean, you said how you know how how, how much you valued him. What what is what was his role um, specifically? Uh, you know, talk about maybe liaison investigations, et cetera. They do a lot for us. Um, but a lot of the listeners are uh, DS interested, DS candidates in some cases. And sure. so, if you don't mind, explain a little yep. bit about. Uh, yeah. So it's a Forest Nurse Service National Investigator. And he does, you know, he has a, a bunch of different roles, but um, one, you know, he helps with investigations. And of course, in Peshawar, we didn't do a, a lot of investigations because, if, you know, the nature of that post, we were basically trying to keep everybody alive. The security was the name of the game. So um, he was, he was a, a um, he was a, a huge force in terms of his ability to get me access to every law enforcement uh, or uh, army, any kind of security uh, uh, personnel or, uh, or high level security person, he could get me access because he was a former Pakistani army officer and that carries a lot of weight in that country. I mean, they, you know, they call themselves a democracy, but you know, when it all comes to it, Pakistan is, is, you know, is controlled by the army. Um, and the fact that he was a former army officer was huge. So um, due, because of him, I was able to get access to the head of the frontier constabulary, the head of the, uh, the uh, Peshawar police, the head of the frontier police, um, and, and the Pakistani army. So um, 
um, I was able to sit down with these people as equals uh, on, an, on, a, on a, any given basis. Also, when you go out to the tribal areas at that time, each tribal area, so you had Moman tribal area, Bajor, Hyber, Orgzai, and so forth, each one was run by a what they call a political agent, which goes back to the British Raj, and that political agent runs that tribal agency. So I was able to sit down with them he was able to get me meetings with them all the time. So when we were, of course, in that time frame, a lot of people wanted to go to the Hyber Agency because of the Khyber Pass. Real historic spot, you know, the Khyber Pass goes from Pakistan into Afghanistan. You know, every uh, invader, invading army, they, they had to come from the north, had to go through the Khyber Pass. You had Tamerlane, you had Alexander the Great, you had, you know, Genghis Khan, they all came through the, the Khyber Pass. So Some history uh, there. So what you're history, saying. Yeah, it's huge. It's a, <laughs> uh, so you got every, you know, we have politicians from the United States that, that we want to go to the Khyber Pass. So Tarek and I would do the advance work for these visits. And that's why I was able to go out to these, these pretty non-permissive areas. And, I, and it was just me, him and me. And at that time, I did not have an armored vehicle. I had a soft vehicle. Um, yeah. Because we just didn't have one. And um, so him and I, we would just do a, like a run silent, run deep. I, I, would, uh, I would communicate what I was going to do to the um, chief of mission, Lynn Tracy. And it was basically between me, her, and Tarek. And uh, we would keep it quiet. And he and I would quietly go out there and do these, these advances of all these different um, sites. And I would come back and say, yeah, we can go there. Or no, we can't. But I always, you know, we did our homework. And we were able to, you know, if we declared something a no-go we would we had plenty of data and experience personal experience because we were there um you know to say no i don't think this is a good idea so that's why i was able to go out and see a lot of these places now it was it was a semi-permissive environment it was quickly becoming a non-permissive but we you know i think because we did what the way we did it very low profile we were able to to get to these places and to and to see him. And then looking back, you know, we both have talked about it since, especially in Swat Valley. We are like, yeah, maybe that last trip there, maybe we should have gone, you know, but uh, thankfully we got in and out of there okay. Yeah, for the, for, to add some context, uh, I, I know there was a time, and, and it may have been when you were there, or maybe a little after, but uh, certainly Peshawar was known to be the most dangerous place in the world, at least for us to go, for, for State Department agents. Um, you know, and, and, and it was, it was, if you, if you were going to go there, you, you knew the possibilities exist. You might not come out uh, just because you guys did get attacked a lot, or at least when you were there, maybe, maybe after. Yeah, we, had, we had 21 bombings in the city. Um, and the worst one was, well, the worst one for me was personal because the chief of police, the chief city police officer or CCPO, Malik Saad, who became my friend, Tarek and I would probably visit him maybe once every couple of weeks. And uh, one day we went to visit him on a Friday. You know, we just dropped in and had lunch with him. And I wanted to invite him to dinner at my house, him and his cousin. His cousin was uh, head of the Frontier Constabulary. And both of them had gone way, way out of their way to help provide security for our consulate. So I wanted to... Um, to thank him by inviting him over for dinner. And he said at that time, I can't come over to your house because the Inter-Services Intelligence Director or the ISI 
thinks that I'm in, I'm in the American's pocket. And if I go over your house, they're going to get the idea that, you know, I'm giving you, you know, state secrets and all this stuff. So we planned to have a dinner at the Pro Continental Hotel. Anyways, that was a Friday. The next day was a Saturday. Um, we're at the American Club on a Saturday night ha having a few beers. And we get word that there was a terrorist bombing in the city. Probably about a mile away from where we are in Kisahani Bazaar, which is in the, the center of Peshawar. And uh, so we're calling, we're calling Malik Saad, calling Malik Saad. And he was usually very accessible, even when he was busy and he wasn't answering the phone, wasn't answering the phone. And um, Tarek was home, so I'm going back and forth with Tarek and both of us are like, that's weird, you know? And then finally, um, I get a call from our public affairs officer who was a local Pakistani and said, he just found out that Malik Saad was dead. So uh, that was like, that was a shock. And what had happened is that there was an Ashura, an Ashura procession, the Shiite Muslims were, were uh, uh, celebrating the Ashura, which is, you know, one of their real important Shia uh, holidays. And there was a big procession there and Malik Saad was there with his whole team overseeing it. And, um, a suicide bomber walked up to him. Now, I, we don't know if he was actually targeted, but I think what I think happened was that he was there to blow up, to kill Shia Muslims, and he saw Malik Saad. Everybody knew who Malik Saad was. He was one of these guys, one of the few men in Pakistan that led from the front. He'd be in, on, you know, he'd be in involved in, in drug uh, interdiction. He'd be showing up at, you know, crime scenes. He. He even pulled over one of our embassy uh, consulate vehicles for having too much tint on it. I mean, he was, that was the kind of guy he was. He was led by the front, led from the front. And I think this guy saw him, recognized him and walked up to him. And just before he hit the toggle switch, uh, one of Malik Saad's lieutenants would, you know, realize what was going and try to get to him, but it was too late. And he blew himself up. He killed Malik Saad. He killed his uh, second in command. He pretty much wiped out his whole chain of command with that with that bombing. So that was probably the worst day in my year in, in shower. Um, yeah, that was that was really bad. So um, yeah, sounds like it. Um, yeah. I think to to the, to the FS and I point, the 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 value they bring, the big value they bring is liaison and knowing people. And and it sounds right. like Tarek's Absolutely, you know, relationship yeah. with with that guy. But let's talk about the ISI a little bit. There's a lot of you know controversy with ISI for people that know them at least moderately well. I've I've read books on them, and they kind of play both sides, is what we hear. Um, and I don't know how much you can share, but I, could you tell us a little bit about your, if you did have a relationship with them, what it was like and what you know about, uh, you know, their activities? Uh, right. Um, yeah. If you read my book, <laughs> you know, I don't like really, I don't have a lot of love for the ISI. Um, they've been playing a double game with the United States for the longest time, you know, um, you know, basically, uh, saying that they're our ally in the war on terror, but all the time they were pretty much propping up the Quetta Shura in Quetta. They were propping up the Haqqani network. I mean, the Haqqani network is basically, was basically an extension of the ISI in Afghanistan and in the tribal areas and so forth. Um, so yeah, they've been playing this double game. Basically when I was in Peshawar, Peshawar, everybody, you know, the ISI just hung over everything. When you met with people like Malik Saad, they, 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 it always came up. You know, we got to be careful because the ISI, you know, is watching everything. 
Um, when we're talking about crime scene integrity, they would tell us how the ISI would come to a bombing and basically scoop up all the evidence and leave. You know, because uh, I was working, the FBI and I were working with Malik Saad and um, EOD guys, or um, explosive ordnance disposal guys, in Peshawar to try to get them trained up. Because again, I, we were having this, this uh, it, it started out as a low intensity bombing campaign and it mushroomed into something huge. So we were trying to get them ramped up and we kept hearing stories about how the ISI would show up at a crime scene and, and take everything. Um, the ISI would, you know, we got reports that the ISI was, was tracking all of us uh, embassy employees or the major players at the uh, consulate. Um, so, and I, you know, uh, the CIA guys came down and said, yeah, have you, have you noticed anyone following you? And I said, yeah, you know, I vary my routes and times. I don't leave work at the same time, you know, I, um, but they were, they were basically, uh, following like all the major players at the consulate to see what we were doing to, I know they had some concerns about, I guess, what, what we were doing, even though, you know, probably tracking us to see like who, who were having meetings with and so forth locally again, cause they were concerned about, you know, uh, uh, political forces, you know, uh, gaining power that probably weren't friendly to the ISI or whatever. Um, you had that twist to it, but to me, the biggest, the most insidious thing about the ISI is the double game they played. And, you know, I, I started to see a little bit of it in my year, first year in Peshawar. I went back a few months late. I went back two other times on temporary duty and, uh, really picked up on it. And then of course, when I was in Afghanistan, you know, then you start reading all the intelligence and you, you, everything is just pointing towards, you know, the ISI prepping up the Haqqani network. And the Haqqani network is basically doing, is, 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 is all of the major terrorist uh, attacks that happened in Kabul were done by the Haqqani network. And who was propping up the Haqqani network was the ISI. And in some of those terrorist attacks, American soldiers were being killed. So it's like, you know, the ISI has American blood on its hands. It's got a tremendous amount of American blood on its hands. And um, yet we were still, you know, I, I, I read somewhere that since 2010, we've given uh, like five or six billion dollars to the Pakistani government. I mean, why? You know? <laughs> and uh, everything I heard was, well, because we need Pakistan to move our logistics, you know, from Pakistan into Afghanistan to um, you know, to, to uh, arm, you know, to supply our, our operations in Afghanistan. And if we, you know, if we cut them off, then they're not going to let us use, you know, those, uh, those border crossings. So we're not going to be able to move our logistic packages into Afghanistan, you know, but, you know, here we are. Now we've been thrown out of, you know, we, we've left Afghanistan and we're still, we're still aiding Pakistan. And to me, um, you know, they pretty much engineered, the fall of, of Afghanistan, there's no question in my mind, you know, and again, they're supposed to be our ally, you know, and it's all about what they call strategic depth, you know, they're, they're concerned about, um, you know, everything, everything in Pakistan is about India, even in Peshawar, which is, you know, the furthest from the Indian border of any other area in Pakistan, but everything revolves about India, everything comes down to India when you're in Pakistan. So that, 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 looms over everything, you know, every decision that's made. Well, what about India? How does that impact India? So the Pakistani government 
is looking at Afghanistan and they wanted their strategic depth. In other words, if, if Afghanistan isn't friendly for them and India is not friendly with them, they're worried about being squeezed in, you know, or they're worried about the Indians getting too much influence in Afghanistan and, you know, again, using that to India's advantage. So there was always that going on, you know, and, you know, I had meetings with Pakistani army officers all the time and it was, everything was great. You know, we love America, you know, this, that, and the other thing. Oh, and here's the, here's the bill. And I did witness this here. We killed so many terrorists, supposedly U.S. government owes us, you know, $15 million for what we just did the last month, you know, and you're like, you know, it was, it was, you know, at the end of the day, it was a bunch of bull. It was all a bunch of crap. So um, it's, a it's, a, it's a tough pill for me to swallow. I bet. I bet I haven't been there. It is. I, I, we, we, our policy, U.S. government policy towards Pakistan uh, is has been awful for years. Uh, and even before uh, 2001, I, I studied uh, in, in, in college. I studied I had an international right. affairs degree and I had some Middle East, East Asia studies. Right. And I remember right. reading about I and how they were playing both sides. And but and, but but prior, I mean, there's sort of some validity to the argument that we needed to get, you know, supplies and, and, and you know through those border crossings. But Pakistan has a nuclear power, and so is is uh, is India, right? I mean, that's my understanding. At least India yeah, is. That, that, um, that's true, and that, that was the other part of the equation. Oh boy, they got nuclear weapons. Yeah, you know, we have to be nice to them. You know, I mean, it's just. <laughs> Yeah, it's like it's. I mean, there's so many other focuses when any administration gets in, and it's never. Uh, it just seems like they're going to kind of keep the status quo, keep funding. I mean, th- didn't we give them like? And this may have been when you were there after before. I forget, but did we give them like sixteen F-18s or something like that at one point? Oh, we've, yeah, we've, we've you know we we have supplied the Pakistani army to to the hilt. Yeah, they have. I don't know how many F-16s, but yeah, they got they got a lot of them, and they're from us, and uh, yeah. Just. So we, you know, again, that was back to the Cold War days, you know, Pakistan was on our side, India was on the Soviet Union, and, you know, that goes back to that, that time. And then, of course, you know, when, when the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan, you know, we, we kept arming uh, Pakistan, and, of course, we were using the ISI to, you know, help, um, help the Mujahideen against the Soviets in Afghanistan, and, you know, and uh, I went from there. Um, so... You know, again, so when 1989, the Russians, the Soviets move out, we kind of left the area alone. So uh, Pakistan basically filled that that void, and uh, they're the ones who created the Taliban. I mean, um, they had they had their guy, you know, they had their players, uh, like Hekmatyar, Hek you've heard of him probably, and um, he was their big guy, and he just couldn't do it. And then Ahmad Shah Massoud and... Uh, the Northern Alliance basically moved into Kabul. And uh, so that's when the ISI turned to this, this group of uh, fighters in Kandahar known as the Taliban and, and then uh, 1994 and the rest is history. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, to, 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 the, to the listeners I've mentioned before in one of my videos about knowing the uh, you're an RSO and it's, you, you know, you, you know, the city, you know, the threats, this, that, and the other, but knowing the, the, the bigger, the bigger game, right. The 30,000 foot view of the politics in the country, how it relates to the politics in the next country. Uh, and I don't know if there's a more important place to know it than, than Pakistan because it's super complicated uh, and, and obviously very important. Uh, you know, well, can you describe a little bit where Peshawar sits? You, you, you mentioned the Khyber pass and all that, but, uh, and you know, uh, 
it, again, it's, it's on the border of Afghanistan, right? Right. It's, it's actually about 30 miles east of, of the Afghan border. Uh, the major border crossing is in uh, the Khyber Pass. Okay. Well, I go from Khyber to Khyber. The locals pronounced it Khyber because they don't pronounce when there's a KH. They don't pronounce the K. So, unfortunately, you know, I go, the English is way of saying is Khyber. The, lo- the Pashtun way is Khyber. But anyway, so if you see, you know, and I, I'll, I'll probably, I keep doing that. Yeah. But anyways, that was the major port- border crossing. It was about 30, 35 miles away from Peshawar. And it, it, the town was Torkham. Torkham. There was Torkham, Pakistan and Torkham, Afghanistan. So that's the major border crossing. Um, that's how close we are to, uh, how, that's how close we were to Afghanistan. And, um, and while I was there, the TTP, the Tariki Taliban Pakistan was basically the Taliban, the Pakistan Taliban version of the Afghanistan Taliban. And, you know, it's kind of, um, now we know, we know that the ISI and the Pakistani army was arming the Taliban to fight in Afghanistan. These, this Taliban on, the, on our side of the border, on the Pakistan side of the border, wanted to create an Islamic Republic in Pakistan also. And, but the Pakistani army would basically let the TTP pretty much do what they wanted to do because they didn't want to anger their Taliban. You understand what I mean? Like yeah. the Taliban, they were playing this, this cute little game, you know, and, and the TTP is going around killing their own soldiers in November of 2006 in a place called Dargai at the uh, Punjab, the Punjab regiment's training site. They had a bunch of basic trainees going through basic training and a suicide bomber walked in the middle of their formation and blew himself up and killed 42 new recruits. And, uh, and the pack mill didn't do nothing. And we, and Tarek was, I remember Tarek being very upset because he's a retired army officer. And he's like, we got to do something. We got to strike back. And, you know, days, weeks go by and nothing happens. And we're like, well, why, you know, why, why, why? you know, and that was why, because they were walking this cute little line between the TTP and the Taliban on the other side of the, of the Duran line, which is the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan. They were playing this cute little game. They, they, you know, they wanted to, to uh, maintain good relations with the, with their Taliban and the theory goes that they wanted to someday use the TTP to go through Kashmir and attack India, use them as terrorists. So they're, again, they were playing this, they had this balancing act, you know? So, and of course, all of this doesn't go with what we're trying to do, right? We're trying to, we're trying to fight Al Qaeda and, and we're trying to f- hunt bin Laden and, and find all these Al Qaeda terrorists. And where are they all? They're all embedded with the TTP in the tribal areas. And they're embedded with the uh, Taliban on the other side of the rail line in Pakistan, I mean, in Afghanistan. So, you know, they, they basically threw us a bone here and there when it worked out for them. But for the most part, they were not a good partner in helping us hunt down, um, you know, Al-Qaeda. They really weren't. You know, I mean, like I said, they, they helped out, especially early on when right after, right after um, 9-11. Yeah. They did, but somewhere around 2003, 2004, Musharraf decided that, you know, enough was enough. He was going to go back to arming the Taliban and and getting them ready to, uh, you know, build them up again where they could go back in and try to take Afghanistan at some point. Yeah. All right, cool. So let's, uh, I want to get into the book a little bit. Uh, you, you had a, the, this attack on principle, 
Um, you had one of those. Um, mm-hmm. You talked a little bit about GRS as well. And um, GRS is, is a question that comes up that I can't talk much about because I, I don't, I, I've worked with them in Erbil, worked with them in Iraq and in, in Baghdad, but well, Baghdad, I just do of them. I didn't really work with them. Um, but what can you tell us about, about GRS? Tell us a little bit about what you Yeah, um, I, for the most part, I had a very good relationship with them. Yeah, I mean, they obviously played a big role in Peshawar because uh, in 2006, that was when President Bush decided to ramp up CIA's operations against, you know, try to find bin Laden. So it basically started when I got there. And uh, so um, I probably was in the uh, consulate maybe a week. And I had two GRS guys show up in my office. And basically, it didn't sit really well with me. I got to say, they were, they, were, they were criticizing my local guards pretty much. They didn't think they were worth much. And um, I took it kind of personal. I was just like, well, hey, I appreciate the, uh, you know, I appreciate the, um, the observations and the advice. And, you know, they pretty much were telling me that they thought they should run security at the consulate, you know. But uh, I was like, all right. Um, I said, well, I just got here a week and I'm still working with these guys. And uh, so, you know, I'll take what you're saying into, you know, into confidence and go from there. And uh, I, I think at the end, by the time, three or four months into my stay there, my local guards were, were great. I mean, they did a fantastic job. But anyways, um, so that started out with me and I was just like, wow, I'm, you know, not my, I, I wasn't, you know, I, I, it didn't sit well with me, but. What ended up happening, and I talk about this in the book, is that one day I was I had just gotten home from work, and I got a call from one of the GRS uh, team leaders. Now their their teams would switch out like every like thirty days or so, so they didn't stay like for a year or six months or you know they were in and out all the time, and they may even go in other locations where you know they were needed maybe in Baghdad or whatever. I don't know. But anyways, one CI, I mean, one uh, GRS team calls me up late, late in the day. I just gotten home from work. And he's like, Steve, we're in trouble. We got a problem. I'm like, what's the problem? He says, well, we drove over to Peshawar Airport to pick up a new few, few new guys on the team. And uh, one of the guys didn't cover up his M4 and the, the police saw it. And I got the, the police have surrounded us now at the airport. They were still in their, their vehicle. There's a uh, Toyota Land Cruiser. They were all in their vehicle and they were pretty much surrounded by the Pakistani police. I was like, great. And uh, he's like, what am I going to do? I said, hey, hang on, let me, uh, let me, let me call uh, Tarek and I'll get back to you. So I call up Tarek and I explain the situation to him. He's like, oh, no problem. He's like, just, just give, um, give my phone number to your friend and have him call me. I was like, really? He's like, yeah, just don't worry about it. So I give him, I give him the guy's phone number. And um, I, mean, I give him Tarek's, I give the GRS guy Tarek's phone number. He calls up Tarek. Well, actually, like 15 minutes go by. And then the GRS calls me back. Guy calls me back and says, he's laughing. He's like, I don't believe it. I'm like, what, what happened? He goes, Tarek's amazing. I go, well, what did he do? He said, he, he, he called me up. And he said, hand the phone to the, uh, the police officer that's right there next to your car. And, and Tarek relayed this to me and said, I said to them, I said, these boys are good chaps. You need to let them go. And I identified myself as Lieutenant Colonel Tarek Khan of the Pakistani army. And 
You need to let these chaps go. They're good boys. And the cop gave him back his phone and said, okay, you can go. That's it. Uh, that's awesome, man. <laughs> right? It's a great story. And I, so that team leader, you know, I had those first two guys walk in who I, you know, obviously didn't care much for. So this new team leader was like, Steve, anything you ever need, you got it. You know, so, and I said to him, I said, all I want from you, buddy, is if things go to shit or go to hell here in Peshawar, you're going to back us up, right? Because I was the only DS agent there. I had me, Tarek, and a bunch of local Pakistani security guys with me. So I was like, so if things go to hell, you're going to help me out, right? He's absolutely, you know, because I, this, the, those first two guys I told you about, I brought this up with them and they're like, nope, oh, our main mission is to protect the chief of station, chief of base. Yes. We have to protect him. So we know we, we can't commit to uh, helping you out if things go bad here. That was the other reason why I didn't care about those two guys. So, yeah. so um, anyways, after what I did for this team leader or what Tarek did really, um, the word went out to every new GRS team is that Steve and Tarek are great guys and they will help you if you need anything, you know? And so after that event, and that, that happened about a month after me being in Peshawar. So for 11 of my 12 months, I had a great relationship with the GRS guys, um, became good friends with them. Um, you know, they, they did their thing and, uh, they pretty much were out there basically screening their agents, you know, when their agents went out to meet with somebody or something, they were, you know, nearby to act as a QRF, the quick reaction force and stuff like that. And of course they provided protection for the, for the chief of uh, base, but they, you know, I'm not saying anything out of school here. I think that's pretty well known. So, um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, after that event, they were great, great guys. I had, you know, great relationship with them. So what you were by yourself did, I mean, they created more ARSO positions down the road, but what, what, yeah. what happened? Were you just short staffed or they didn't have other positions created yet? <laughs> I kept asking for an ARSO and they were like, no, no, we can't, can't give it to you. And one bombings, you know, bombs are going off left and right. We actually had a huge, huge truck bomb that was probably parked gee, quarter mile away from the embassy. I mean, the consulate in Peshawar in this area called Sutter Bazaar. It was very close to the consulate. If that bomb had gone off, it would have been done tremendous damage, but it was a, uh, it was a dud. Somehow they screwed it up and it just caught the truck caught on fire and it never, it never went off. But I remember I was in the balcony of my, it was on a Sunday when that happened and I was on my, the balcony of my house and I can see this plume of smoke going up and I'm like, you know, making all these calls and I'm like, that looks awfully close to the consulate. And, end up driving over there and um yeah it was a bomb that didn't go off you know but they said if it it had so many um artillery shells in that truck that it would have been a devastating explosion but um so yeah we you know it was uh we it, 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 i kept asking for help i kept um i kept writing cables like outlining all these events that were happening and um you know, this is an 0607 is, of course, this is when the, um, the surge, in, uh, surge in Iraq was going on, you know, and I was like, but then my last three months in uh, summer of 07, my last three months in uh, Peshawar, I started keeping statistics of people being killed in, in the northwest frontier province compared to casualties in, 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 um, in Baghdad and we exceeded Baghdad by 
And I was like, look at me, I'm just, just me all by myself, you know, and uh, yeah. And they got an army of DS agents in Baghdad, but I'm here by myself. So when I left in August of 2007, Carl, Carl Bolterowicz replaced me and they gave him a TDY ARSO. And like that was, that kid was worth his weight in gold. I mean, he just, you know, it was a huge help. Guy named Brendan Hobson. I don't know if you know Brendan. Mm-hmm. But, I know Bolterowicz. Uh, yeah, both Bolterowicz. Yeah, Carl's yeah. a great guy, great guy. And, uh, you know, he had his, you know, and that's when, um, you know, when he came in and, you know, Swat Valley was taken over by the Taliban and, uh, you know, things continued to get worse. So you didn't even get MSD support that time. None of it. Okay. Nothing. No, that whole year, I never got MSD support. The one time I did get M- we did get MSD support was when I went back in January of 2009. I went back to help out. The, the RSO then was Dave Azarian. And um, that in January of 2009, there was a belief that the t- TTP was going to take over Peshawar. I mean... The enemies were at the gates. It was just when I arrived, you know, because I, I went back after I left in 2007. I went back in 2000, August of 2008, when Lynn Tracy's uh, motorcade was attacked. You know, she was the chief of mission and um, Peshawar. And um, I went back then and things were getting bad. And then I went back again in January of 2009, three months later. And uh, we had just lost an American contractor that was uh, killed by the TTP. So um, things were, um, things were getting bad. Things were really bad at that point. We were, you know, uh, the, you know, when you talk to, when I talked to Malik Navid, the uh, head of the frontier police, who was Malik Saad's cousin, um, who had become a good friend of mine. He was like, Steve, um, you know, it, it could happen any day. The, 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 the TTP could take this place, you know, they weren't, yeah, you know, they were expecting it. So, wow. Yeah. So let's tell, let's talk a little bit about that attack then uh, on the motorcade. What set, set the scene for us and, and how to go down? Right. So, um, uh, I left in August of 2007. I ended up going to the Orlando Joint, Joint Terrorism Task Force. So, I was, uh, I, I was in the JTTF in Orlando. I was a, an agent there. Um, I got a call in August, uh, one afternoon in August and said that Lynn's, Lynn Tracy, the, uh, the chief of mission, the principal officer's motorcade was attacked by what we believe to be the TTP. Um, so as they were, as they pulled out of her house, they took a left onto Raymond Barber Road and then came to an intersection, took a right on Railway Road, which was called. And as they were driving, uh, uh, south on Railway Road, um, two vehicles pulled in front of them at another intersection. Guys get out of their vehicles, pulled out their AKs and started opening fire on, on, on Lynn's vehicle. And she had a driver who, thankfully, my year, in my year in Pakistan, in my year in Peshawar as the RSO that time, I sent the driver to Bill Scott Raceway for training. And then the um, the other guy was another local. These are both. Uh, so, anyways, the driver worked directly for us at the consulate. The uh, the guy in the right front, the uh, was a local Pakistani cop that we trained. I sent him up to uh, the ATA camp in Islamabad to get protection training. So, 
Anyways, these guys open fire on the vehicle. Uh, Zephyr, the driver, hits the brakes. Uh, Afzal turns around and looks at Lynn and tells her to get down. Bullets are hitting the car now at this time. They, they, they back up, reverse out. And what they had done is put a rickshaw driver to block them. And I don't know if you've seen those little rickshaws there or whatever, but um, Zephyr drove right through him, just basically sent him flying backwards. And when we ended up getting the, vi the, the video from the Save the Children compound, which is another story, but when we look, end up looking at the video, you can see his, his feet are kicking like this as the, as the uh, rickshaw is being hurled backwards. So uh, Zephyr did a textbook reverse out, turned right, went right back to Lynn's house. Basically, they basically saved Lynn because they were either going to kidnap her or, or kill, her, kill her, one of the two. And uh, so uh, those two guys, two local Pakistanis, saved her life. They did wow. a textbook, you know, get off the X. Yep. I mean, you can't, you, I mean, you can't, uh, you can't draw it up any better than that, you know? So, um, so I get the call, you know, there's been an attack. So I ended up going, joining the FBI team to do the investigation. You know, they asked me to go because I still have a Pakistani visa. Of course, I was RSO for shower less than a year ago. So I'm like, absolutely. I want to go. And, uh, me and another agent went, you know, representing DS as the uh, PI, Protective Intelligence Investigations. And um, so we ended up going back to uh, Peshawar and uh, I linked back up with, with uh, Tarek. Tarek was working at the um, embassy in Islamabad at that time. And uh, we couldn't fly into Peshawar because Peshawar was considered non-permissive. We couldn't fly in. So we had to fly into Islamabad and um, we uh, got a, we got a ride from um, Tarek, and he he drove basically drove me and the other agent to um, back to Peshawar to help with the FBI doing the investigation. So, um, you know, and then you know when I got there, I met with both those guys, and uh, it was it was um, it was pretty emotional. I mean, they were both crying. I mean, it was um, uh, I felt bad for the Pakistani police officer because of all his buddies. We're calling him a coward because you're a Pashtun, you're supposed to fight, yes. you know. And he was like, I guess he was taking a lot of crap, you know, over that. And I was just like, no, man, you, you did your job. You did it better than anyone could have expected. You know, if, if DS agents had done that, we would have been, you know, we'd have been thrilled. You know what I mean? I mean, uh, so the fact that you two guys who could have just, I mean. They, you know what I mean? They could have just said the hell with it, right? I mean, yeah. but they didn't, you know, and, uh, you know, they got her, they got her back to the house and, and saved her. And uh, so I met with those two guys and I met, met with Lynn, who, you know, she thanked me for coming back. She was very appreciative and um, she was really stoic about it, you know, uh, but you know, I was like, Lynn, you know, you've been here two years now. You've got another year to go. You know, it's this is your chance. You know, you, no one would expect you to stay here after what just happened. And she's like, "No, no, no, I'm gonna stay. I'm gonna finish my tour." You know, and I was like, "All right." And then uh, um, when I went back in January of 2009, when I just mentioned, I met with her again, and at that point, we found out that there was a threat against her, that that one of the local Pakistanis was basically giving up her her movement information to the TTP. 
And that's when she decided that she was going to live at the consulate. She wasn't even going to go home. So she was basically living and working out of her office. She had a little, little bathroom and a little, little bed she slept in for like probably nine, her last nine months on that post. So, I mean, you know, they don't come much braver than her, you know, and, and, that, and the thing was what she, no one told her to do that, but she didn't want to put us DSA, she didn't want to put DS agents or Pakistanis protecting her in danger because we would be the ones moving her back and forth. So that's when she decided that she was going to spend the last nine months of her time in Peshawar in her office, basically, which um, I, you know, it was amazing. I mean, again, I said to her, Lynn, no one would expect you to stay here after this just came out. There's a threat on your life. You know, it's a specific threat against you. And she wouldn't leave. She, she finished her three years there and um, she ended up getting a heroism award from, um, you know, Secretary State Clinton. So, I mean, and no one deserved it more than her, you know? Yeah. Man, that's dedication and leadership. Yeah. Right? Sticking yeah. it through, not, not putting right. your, your yeah. team in danger. Uh, mm -hmm. That's awesome. Well, since you brought it up, uh, you know, uh, what, tell us about, you said the Save the Children compound. What happened there? Okay. So we're doing the investigation and um, we got an FBI guy who's the team leader and he is the quintessential, and he used to be a former, he's a former DS agent now turned FBI agent. He is the team investigative team leader for the FBI. Um, and you know, he's being the, the stereotypical FBI agent who knows everything. And, you know, I don't care what you think or whatever. So anyways, we get there. Our first meeting is with the, the, um, the head of the frontier police, Malik Navid, who was like a very good friend of mine. Malik, let me, I'll try to give you a quick backstory here. Malik Navid uh, was the commander of the frontier constabulary before he became the head of the frontier police, you know, the province, the provincial police chief. The Frontier Constabulary, he, he basically put a platoon outside of our consulate for years as just a static security. When Malik Saad died, Malik Saad was his cousin. And when Malik Saad died, I, I, made, I decided I wanted to go to his funeral. Now, they had a big, huge public funeral in Peshawar with thousands of people. I didn't go to that. But... He was also having a family funeral at his house in um, Kohat, family house in Kohat, which is on the edge of the tribal areas. And you have to drive through the tribal areas to get there. So I told Tarek, I said, Tarek, I want to go to Malik Saad's funeral. And he needs you to take me there. And he's like, uh, please don't, no, we shouldn't do it. You know, it's dangerous. And I'm like, I said, look, if, I, if something happened to me, I know he would come to my, my you know, ceremony or whatever. I said, we're going to go. I mean, are you going to go with me or not? And he's like, okay. So again, one of these quiet trips, we drive out to the, uh, to Kohat and go to the funeral. Malik Naveed sees me there. Now I'm the only Westerner at the funeral. So I kind of stick right out, you know, Malik Naveed already knows me. And like, um, he comes over and gives me this big hug and says, I cannot believe you are here. This means so much to me and my family, you know, and I was like, Hey, you know, I had to do it. Malik Saad was a good friend and, you know, I had to pay this respects. And so, you know, use the old mafia term. I was a made man. 
Mm-hmm. I was a made man after going to that funeral. So that was the smartest move I ever made in, my, in, in Peshawar was going to that funeral because Malik Naveed ended up becoming the, the head of the Frontier Police. So now we fast forward to 2008 for this investigation. And um, our first meeting is with Malik Naveed. And he, as I walk in the office with the FBI team, Malik Naveed, you know, they go to shake his hand. He kind of just brushes them off, comes over, gives me a big hug and lets everybody know that Steve's my guy, you know? So sits down and he says, what Steve, not Donnie or whoever else, you know, Steve, what do you need from me? What can I do for you? And that was, you know, he opened the doors for us. Yeah. So that was off to a good start, you know? <laughs> so anyways, one of the things he had told me was that, uh, he goes, the, uh, the attack happened right by the Save the Children compound. And he goes, but they won't give us the tapes. The head of Save the Children won't, won't cooperate with us. So I have to get a warrant. It's going to take that, that, that. I'm saying, Save the Children. I said, oh, yeah, one, my old surveillance detection guy is now head of is now head of security for Save the Children. And um, the backstory on him is, is that uh, he was my, uh, so he, he, he was one of our surveillance detection guys and he had a son that um, had a rare blood disease who actually needed to travel to India of all places to try to get, to try to get uh, to save his son. Anyways, he goes to India, the, the boy dies, and the Indians won't release the body, so we make calls. Kyle Bolterwitz makes calls to um, to the embassy, uh, to the consulate in Mumbai, and gets his body released by the Indian government. And so we've done we've done a solid for the head of security, who's now the head of security for Save the Children. So his name is Afnan, and we're good friends. So I get an Afnan's number. I call him up. He's like, oh, Steve, it's so good to hear from you. And uh, I said, Afnan, I need a favor. Oh, anything. I said, yeah. You know, I tell him what happened. We happened right in front of your compound. Can we, can we look at your uh, video? Absolutely. He says, like, I'm in Islamabad. I'm going to drive. I'll drive here tomorrow morning, and I'll meet you at, at 1 o'clock. And um, we get there. He gets the videos. We start playing it back, and we see the whole we see the we see the whole attack take place. We see, you know, Zephyr going backwards, hitting the hitting the um, the rickshaw driver, and so so we get that piece of evidence, you know that. So again, it it, it pays to be nice to people, you know. <laughs> yeah, I feel like every episode of this podcast, I, I I use the term relationships matter, right? Building those relationships with the locals, with with internal staff as well, right? With Americans as well, but relationships get you everything and and and, oh my god uh, and they certainly came back in this case right Uh, oh my god in spades you know i mean it was just like you just said i mean it uh, for a for a ds agent as an rso arso it's all about those relationships you establish with the local police and with every other you know um player you know whether it's in the government the the military the police whatever these relationships are huge and Especially, in, especially in um, countries like that, where it's all—that's all it is. It's all about human relationships, and um, so you know, it, it paid off. And, and, and you know, you, you, and you, I don't know. I, 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 one of the great things about this job is the people you meet. You know, and um, and that meant a lot to me. And uh, 
And like I said, we became good friends. We came really, we, actually Malik Naveed's um, son uh, just was granted asylum here in the United States. And I helped, I, I, uh, I, um, I was at the asylum hearing and I was, a, I vouched for him. So, you know, Malik Naveed was, called me up a few weeks ago to thank me. And I was like, no, no, you know, this is, this is the least I can do. You know, all the, all the things you did for us. So, uh, you know, you're welcome. You know, I'm glad I could help. So. Oh, that's awesome, man. Well, shoot, I could talk to you all day about Pakistan, but you have other places <laughs> you've been. <laughs> you have a 20 year career, right? I mean, uh, so uh, let's, let's go on. So you went to Orlando JTTF. You, you talked about a few things, uh, there uh that you're know, coming yeah. back to pakistan a anything else good happened there any good investigations we i don't think i've had many jttf guys or girls on well, the you podcast. know the thing was the biggest thing i did in and and there was a couple of things that happened and again it it relates to going back and forth to pakistan um one day we got a phone call uh in orlando at the jttf and an fbi agent comes over to me and says hey Get this local uh, so Orlando woman on the phone who said she's from Pakistan and she said there's a house in Islamabad that's going to be blown up. It's going to be attacked. And she said, because Americans live there. And I'm like, wow, that doesn't. And I'm, I'm thinking, I'm saying, hey, hang on one second to this guy. I said, let me call my buddy in the JTTF in Newark who was an Islamabad agent when I was in Peshawar. And uh, I said, hey, this is what this woman is saying about us, this house in um, this house in uh, in Islamabad. And he's like, okay, if she's not lying, ask her what what's you know, because Islamabad is is broken up into grids and everybody knows them. So like, if you live in J three or H one, that's that's how it's designated. I I live in J three, you know, whatever. And I was like, oh yeah, yeah, that's right. She's like, ask her what's what grid it is, and she. We ask her and she spits it right out, like H1 or something or whatever. And he's like, yeah, we, you might want to take that seriously. So, so it's me and an FBI agent dealing with this threat information. Um, so we write up an IIR, an intelligence uh, information report, which has to go from Orlando up to FBI headquarters and it sits there until it gets approved. And then it gets transmitted to Islamabad. That didn't sit right with me. So what I ended up doing is I sent, I, I, I wrote an email, a classified email detailing what happened and sent it to uh, the deputy RSO there, who was a friend of mine who was, who was, uh, he was, he was, um, he was a deputy RSO when he had just came on the job in Islamabad when I was leaving Peshawar. So I knew him. So I said, hey, Chris. Anyways, I, I wrote the email and then I called him up and I knew it was nighttime in Islamabad, Friday night. I said, hey, Chris, this might be nothing, but I wrote you an email on the class side. Take a look at it. I just, you know, it's some thread info. It's pretty specific and I don't want to let this sit. Yeah, sure. Well, I come in, so that was Friday night. I don't hear anything over the weekend. I come in Monday morning and my classified email is going crazy. And it's Randall Bennett, the RSO in Peshawar, writing me like, oh God, yeah. Uh, this house is, was basically a, um, a CIA safe house. So 
Wow. They basically, they pulled everybody out of there. It's like, you gotta be shitting me. So I, <laughs> I, I get the email, I bring it to my FBI boss and he's like, ah, yeah, come on in, close the door. This is what happened. So basically when, when Chris got the information and they looked into it, of course the whole embassy gets spun up. The FBI legat walks in and is like, well, what the hell's going on? And they tell him, oh, we just got some information from the Orlando JTTF about uh, so he's pissed off because he didn't know about it. So he calls back Orlando like Saturday morning at our time, you know, Eastern Standard Time, and he's pissed off. He's talking to the uh, the sack, you know, who's this guy Steve Silva sending this information? You know, well, uh, so he's, he's you know everybody's everybody's angry. And they're like, we got to re-interview this woman, and I don't want Silva there. Screw him, you know, pretty much. So that happened over that weekend. I come in Monday, and he's like, he tells me what happened. And he's like, why did you go ahead and let them know without us, you know, before we did? And I said, first of all, the IIR, I believe, is still sitting in D.C. right now. I said, second of all, it's threat information. So the DSS office and every embassy has chief emission authority. We, we, have, we control every... Every, we're responsible for every piece of housing in an embassy community, as you know. And I said, and so if one of those houses goes boom, no matter if it's, he goes, but then he stops me, he says, but that's not a, it's not a State Department house, it's CIA. And I'm like, doesn't matter. It's called Chief Emission Authority. So I said, all I wanted to do was just to let him know in case it was something important. And apparently it was, you know, so. So they could they couldn't they, understand that you saved some lives. Yeah, they were really, <laughs> they were really I was walking around in eggshells. The ASAC in the office wanted me like gone. You know, he hated me for that. And I was like, you know what, uh, sir, you know what? I was just like, I I, I apologize, but I would do it again. I mean, I, I was I wrong, you know. <laughs> I wasn't wrong. <laughs> so um, anyways, the league at yeah, he was he was pissed with, about Steve Silva. And anyway, when I went back up to the shower to do the investigation for Lynn's attack, who was the league at? Him still. And as I when I got into the embassy, and I'm we're all you know marshalling up me and the FBI agents. He's like he comes over to me. So you're Steve Silva, huh? I'm like hey sir, nice to meet you. Like oh, yep. You know he just looked at me like yeah, this is the asshole. You know. <laughs> So that that's that that whole story. So that was kind of a big event. The other big thing I did in the JTTF there was we I, I can't really go into detail, but we had a source that was going into Pakistan from from Orlando, and he was uh, the U.S. intelligence community's like number one guy in a certain city, and he was and we were working on me and two other guys. So that. That ended up being a, um, that was a huge uh, case. I, you know, I, my last year in, in Orlando, that's all I did was work on that case. So I write it, I was writing up there the, the debriefs from, from him every time he went over there to, to do what he was doing. So that was pretty cool. Yeah. Sounds like, how many years were you at JTT? That's a three year assignment. I was there three years. Yeah, okay. I was there three years. And then one other thing I ended up doing was, now, one of the similar, uh, I, I thought it was a pretty good story was that uh, 
we had a young kid who was a um, Latino kid who had just converted to Islam and had gotten in trouble. And, um, you know, so one of the FBI agents was like, hey, maybe you can uh, strike up a relationship with this guy. Here we go again, relationships. So um, I ended up meeting him for lunch and uh, I, I knew a lot about Islam because I served, you know, at that time, two years of my career in Islamic countries. And I, I read a lot and I read, a, I read a lot of books. And so, you know, I could talk about Islam, like, you know, I was informed, you know what I mean? And he was, he was impressed that I could actually talk about Islam to him in that way. And uh, so I said, hey, can, can you help us out? I said, like, when you go to the local mosque, you go to your mosque, can you just, all we're asking you is if you hear anything, let us know. And he's like, yeah. I don't think I can do that, you know, because I feel like I'm betraying my group of people. And I was like, all right, fine, you know, okay. Well, about six months later, he comes, he, he reaches back out to me and says, uh, can we meet again? I, I want to talk to you. And I was like, all right. Well, now he's met a girl who's Catholic and he decides he doesn't want to be Islamic, uh, Muslim anymore. And now he says, I can, I can help you. I, I, would, I want to help you now. He goes, because I felt like I was betraying them, but now I'm not. And you, you seem like a good guy. I'd like to help you guys out. So what we ended up doing, I ended up putting him, I, I, I basically handed him off to the, um, the internet guys. And he basically became a person on the internet that um, reached out to self-radicalized Americans who wanted to do bad things. And um I left the JTTF and I, I think I ran into an FBI agent like a year later and he was like, you know, that guy, that kid you gave us is doing great work. So again, it was, again, human relationships, relationship, you know, so I felt good about that. I felt like, you know, that was a, that was a win, you know. Man, you put in some work. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, that's, 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 uh, he said every DSA just has some stories, but you know, uh, and and they do, but th these these are uh, th these are good. This is this is good. So what what do we got? Uh, what's after what's after Orlando? So Orlando, uh, I went I went to uh, I went to Miami to become a supervisor. Okay. I was there for three years, so uh, you know did a lot of protection, did a lot of basically operationally ran the office, you know. So you know, kind of you know uh, management stuff. Nothing real sexy or exciting. So. From there, I went to, um, you know, I went to uh, to uh, uh, Bagram. You know, I went from there to Bagram. So um, I was. That's where, the, that's where the book picks up, right? Uh, that's when the book picks up. Yeah, 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 exactly. So now I'm in Bagram. Actually, I go to Kabul first. You know, you got to go to the embassy in um, Kabul and hang out there for a couple of weeks to get in process. You know, which just seems like. You know, you know how it is. You get an assignment. You just kind of want to, you want to just start ticking off those days. You know what I mean? And just, you know, when you're in a high threat post and when you're in a, when you're sitting at the uh, embassy in Kabul and you know, your job is in Bagram, it's just frustrating. You know, just every day seems long, you know, you're not spinning your wheels. You can't even get your, your email going, you know, whatever. And then um, finally, you know, I'm all set. I'm going to go to Bagram. So, now I get, uh, you know, they said, okay, we got a, we got a driver all spun up for you. They're going to take you to Camp Alvarado. 
which is, you know, you're going to drive up to Camp Alvarado, which is right next to Kabul Airport. And then from Camp Alvarado, you get a, you know, a chopper and um, helicopter and fly to Bagram. Okay. So I get up that morning, get all my stuff, and it's just me and this Afghan driver. And I'm like, wow, that's it. Just me and an Afghan guy. You know, I don't even know who this guy is. So that was nerve wracking in itself, but he ends up being a nice guy. Just chatted him up. You know, we talked a lot. Get to El Verado, get on a, um, get on a helicopter and fly to uh, Bagram. And, uh, and then when you come down, you're coming into Bagram, it's just this big uh, dust bowl of, a, of an air base in the middle of the Shamali plain surrounded by the Hindu Kush. And you're like, yep, okay, this is it. You know, this is, uh, this is Afghanistan. <laughs> and then my heir or so, a guy named Ryan Cheezer. I don't know if you know Ryan. Heard the name. Great guy. Great guy. Thank God he was my heir or so. Um, he was already there. He'd been there a couple of weeks before me. And uh, so you know how it is when you get to a place like that, you see a familiar face. It's like, that's everything, you know, so. Um, yeah. So we get there and, you know, we're going to be basically responsible for the security of like, we got about 20 Americans who are with USAID, US Agency for International Development, and a few State Department people. And of course, Karen Decker, who is a senior civilian rep. Um, so Karen has got a reputation of like, she doesn't suffer fools. She's a type A personality. She'll basically tell you to go to hell right to your face. And, you know, if you screw, you know, she just, she's just that kind of a person. And uh, she's not your typical uh, squishy, stereotypical foreign service officer. She's not anything like that at all. Lynn Tracy was like a librarian. I keep saying that in my book. She reminded me of a like sweet lady, nice lady, smart lady, brave lady, courageous but pretty quiet, pretty, you know, even keel. Karen was like the exact opposite. She's just like, she's in charge and she's gonna let you know it. And she's gonna be doing this a lot, you know? So uh, I figured that out pretty quick. And um, so what, I, what we're gonna do is we're responsible for the people at, the, at, at Bagram uh, for their security. And Bagram, when we were there for that year, on average, every five days, we got rocketed by the Taliban. So we would get, you know, we get hit here and there. You know, like I said, on average, every five days. And we'd have, Ryan and I would get into our little B-hut. You know, it was a B-hut. And uh, no overhead cover. I mean, it was it had a roof and everything. But if we, hit, if we got a direct hit, we'd be dead, you know. And the same thing for our, console, our uh, platform housing there. It was... There was no overhead cover to protect you from, you know, from the, um, the artillery, you know, from the rockets. So uh, <clears throat> when we did get an attack, you know, we got in that office, we, we got on the radio, called everybody, got accountability, reported it to, um, to uh, Embassy Kabul. And when we got information from the Joint Operations Center at Bagram, like where, where, the, uh, where the rocket struck, you know, casualties, you know, point of origin site, all that stuff, we wrote up a report and, and send it to, um, to Kabul. So that was one of our, our missions. Um, we also had, there was also the, uh, the Parwan Detention Center. That's basically where all the Taliban were housed, all the Taliban prisoners. And there was an, um, an INL, um, 
uh, State Department person ran that, was basically running that, um, not running the prison, but running the Justice Center in Parowan, which was basically the lawyers, the prosecutors and um, defense attorneys for these Taliban. They were basically, they had the prison there, they'd walk them over to the courthouse, the Justice, Justice Center in Parowan, it was known as the JSIP, walk them over there for their trials. They would also uh, have their lawyer meetings with the defense attorneys with the State Department uh, um, employee, basically, and a bunch of other lawyers, if you will. And so we were responsible for their security, too. And they were on the other side of the base. And, um, you know, this guy's name was Dennis. And Dennis was always worried about the Taliban prisoners, you know, killing them. <laughs> and uh, but he had army security there. He had an army unit there that was providing security, but he was never happy with it. So we were constantly being called to go up there and meet with the army guys. And then I meet with Dennis and I'd be like, Dennis, these guys are doing the best they can. You know, we're in the middle of a downswing. They're pulling troops out of Bagram then. That was when the drawdown was beginning. I said, so as your, as your year goes on here, you're gonna have less and less soldiers here helping you out. Do you understand that? You know, and they only can do so much. But anyway, so that was another one of our missions. And then we also had protecting Karen. Anytime Karen, when Karen was doing a, a battlefield circulation, she was going out with generals. Or some, most of the time she went out by herself. And we would get in helicopters and she would fly to a fog. If she, if she stayed on the fob, we didn't go with her because that was, you know, that was a safe, safe thing. But anytime she went off a fob, me or Ryan, me or Ryan Cheezer went out with her. And uh, we were her, basically her protection, you know. So we were, we made, um, we went to every, every, um, we went to every province and regional command east except Obamia between me and him. So we were out in the shit, as they say, you know. And, and then the biggest thing was, Green on blue attacks. You know, we were constantly worried about you know Afghan soldiers that were supposed to be our allies turning on on Karen, killing Karen, and any other. And sometimes we had other State Department people go with her on these trips, so we were responsible for Karen and them. So, and like Embassy Kabul was saying, you don't really got to do this. You know, you don't got to do this. And I was like, well, hang on a second. You know, the year before I I got there and. Um, August of 2013, and in, in May of 2013, Ann Schmenninghoff, who was a uh, embassy Kabul employee, was killed in Zabul province. Heard of her. Yeah. Doing, um, handing out books to students. She was killed and another embassy officer was uh, seriously injured. And I said, well, we're just, you know, we're not going to have that, you know, while I'm here, because I'm not going to be, I'm not going to go in front of Congress and explain why Karen Decker got blown up. You know, I'm just not going to do that. And um, so when she goes off the fog, we're going to be with her. And, you know, that was that. So, uh, you know, I, I just, you know, it didn't make sense to me. We're, we're here. This is what we're supposed to do. We're trained to do this. We're going to do it. And, um, you know, Ryan was great about it. And we had another guy, a kid named Josh Peterson, who used to come out of the uh, embassy in Kabul to, you know, when one of us were on R&R, he fell in. And uh, between the three of us, yeah, we covered every, uh, we went on, we went to every province and regional commandees with Karen except for Bamiyan. So um, we, we did our job, you know, and, uh, <clears throat> and she appreciated it. Um, 
but she was a, she was a tough nut. Like I mean, like the very first trip she was going to go on, I got reporting about uh, uh, indirect fire attacks and on a, a fob airborne, which is in Wardak province. And I was like, again, I'm new. I've been here maybe three weeks, and I'm like, Karen, I, I'm I'm not going to allow the trip. And she went nuts. <laughs> you're gonna cancel my trip because of idf and i'm like yeah well yeah yeah you know and she's pissed so uh i reached out i said all right let me so i reached out to the s2 the intelligence officer at fob airborne and he's like look you know the uh the uh the idf is happening at night or early in the morning and once i was once i was in bagram long enough to figure out idf usually happens first thing in the morning or at night, you know. So I learned to let, and I, she was right and I was wrong. So I went back to her and said, you know, Karen, you know, I think after speaking with the S2, I feel be, you know, better about this and, you know, we're going to go on with the trip. So, but like, she let me know uh, that day that like, you know, if you're not going to let me do my job. You're not going to be here long, you know? And uh, so, so she won that battle and rightly so. But then a few months later, she wanted to go to this uh, Islamic conference in Ghazni. And we were getting all kinds of um, threat information about the, you know, the, the Taliban were going to attack this conference. They're going to attack this conference. And I said, you know, I, I put together this report. And I'm like, Karen, we can't go. And she's, you know, she's not very happy. What do you mean we can't go? And I'm like, well, this is, I give her, you know, get all the particulars. Sure enough, the Islamic conference gets hit by a mortar attack from the Taliban, wounding, wounding about three or four Polish soldiers and other members of uh, the uh, local Ghazni governor's delegation and so forth. And um, her, uh, <laughs> she had a mill aide because she was considered a general. So her mill aide calls me up. She's like, he's like, Karen is so pissed because She's like, Steve's never going to let me forget this, that he was right, you know. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> But I was very gracious about it. And I was like, oh, you know, hey, you know, it, I'm just glad we didn't go, Karen. That's all. <laughs> so at that point, though, your relationship had grown, right? So you had built that, yeah, I mean, we, that personal yeah, capital, I mean, that yeah, rapport I mean, with her. We were good. We were, we were always good. And, you know, like I said, I learned, to, I learned with Karen to stay in my lane. If I stayed in my security lane, and I had my, did my homework. She never bothered me. You know, when we had these meetings, like, you know, we'd have these, uh, she called them the huddle because she was a big football person. We'd have a weekly huddle with all the, uh, not just State Department and USAID, but Army officers that reported to her because they were, um, uh, what do you, I'm trying to think. Um, they were part of the, uh, the engagement, the engagement with the Afghans. And, um, one of them reported that the governor of Nangahar province has been replaced by somebody one day. And she goes, she's like, that is incorrect. That is not true. Karzai has nominated somebody and uh, he is not governor yet. So get your facts straight. You know, like this guy's an army colonel, you know? And it's like, me and Ryan are looking like, whoa, okay. <laughs> so like, yeah, you know, if you screwed up, she just, she hammered you, you know? So it was like, all right, lesson learned. You know, I'm glad, glad, glad he got embarrassed and not me, you know? So, but. That's the term I was going to use. Uh, lessons learned. A lot of lessons learned in that story. One, flexibility. 
find, right. to finding a way because if right. they're if they're gonna get a job to do they're gonna do it uh, you know unless right. but but also you know knowing the threshold of when you have to say no and balancing that right. building that personal capital that rapport it's a ton of lessons learned for uh future dsa just listening to this in that one story <laughs> i um, mean and when you know and when i told her she couldn't go to farm airborne we were on the tarmac and it was loud because of all the and she's screaming at me and nobody nobody can really hear that so i was like i'm glad i had that conversation <laughs> out on the out on the tarmac because i you know i was the guy with egg on my face after you know i felt like you know i didn't you know i should have known my i should have known you know i didn't do all my homework yet you know i didn't have the experience yet to make an informed decision like that but I was glad, you know, I wasn't in a big meeting like with that colonel, you know. Yeah, that's the real strategy. That's the real lesson learned. Do it, do it under the the blades. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. Yeah. All the, the helicopter blades are going. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Anything else happened there that you want to chat about? Uh, let's see. What else? We, you know, we had, you know, the, the one thing I, I want to talk about in Afghanistan, because, you know, especially with everything that happened last August, you know, and the, um, when I left Afghanistan, I had a, I, we all had the feeling that the Afghan army was going in the right direction. Um, they, uh, they had two elections that year in 2014. They had the first, you know, because Karzai's term was ending, so they had the new presidential election, and like everything was like pointing towards it's going to be a, it's going to be a, um, it's going to be a disaster. It's going to be bloody, deadly. It's going to be terrible. And um, we pretty much we were going to do the reporting. We were going to, you know, the uh, the tenth Mountain Division was the the headquarters element that was in. Afghanistan in Bagram at that time. So Karen and the, Karen and the general, General Townsend, who um, I think now is AFRICOM commander or great guy, General Townsend. Um, him and her were going to work with the Afghans at a high level to try to get their leadership ready to provide security for this election. And, uh, you know, they were, gonna, they were basically going to be the guys on the ground doing the work. And we had we had one election between and uh, basically nobody got it was just a plurality nobody got a majority of the votes so it was Ashraf Ghani against Abdullah Abdullah and then after that they had to do another election because it was a runoff you know at that point so you get two elections they provided the security for both those elections they pretty much minimized uh, the Taliban was was ramped up ready to go to to break the back of Afghanistan over those elections. And they failed miserably. And the guys at the forefront were, was, was the Afghan army. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't us. We, we were there, you know, to mentor them and to provide air support and all these other logistical things. But for the most part, the guys on the ground with the Afghan army who got not to be one election, but two, pretty much, pretty much, um, pretty clean. There weren't really, they, they, we had so much, and I detail in my book, we had tons of, you know, um, SIGINT from the Taliban, like with their frustration that they didn't break, they didn't stop the election, that they were a miserable failure, that they, you know, they ran out of ammunition, they, 
you know, and because they used up so much ammo in the first election, they went like a month without being able to really operate effectively in regional command east. So we felt pretty good about the Afghan army. Um, so between 2014 and 2021, you know, I don't know what happened, but it, it was it was a shock to me that, you know, when August rolled around and it just, it folded up and unfolded the way it did, you know? Yeah. Um, because these guys were doing the job. I mean, it was pretty impressive. Wow. So, yeah, I guess things can turn around that quick or who knows yeah. what type of support I, they had. Yeah. Well, cool, man. What was after, uh, what was after Afghanistan? Um, so then I, I left Afghanistan and went to Fletzy. I was a DS representative at Fletzy. Okay. I did that for two years, basically overseeing all of our training at Fletzy, overseeing all the new agents coming in for their basic training. So I got to meet a lot of guys and, um, it is funny because, you know, I did, I, I, I ran the RSO training program in 2004 to 2006, and I met a bunch of young agents there. And then fast forward to Fletzy in 20, 2015, 2014 to 2016, I'm meeting new agents there. And um, I got to know a lot of people. So because of those two positions, um, I was able to meet a lot of DS agents that probably wouldn't have been able to meet, you know, normally, you know, but because I oversaw all that training and, you know, you see all these guys and, you know, that was the good thing. I got to, again, relationships. I made a lot of friends, a lot of, you know, a lot of younger guys I was able to train up. And, uh, um, and then the Fletzy, uh, you know, just saw them as they first coming in and, you know, you try to be a mentor. I know when I went through Fletzy way back in the old days in 1999, I saw my DS agency rep maybe twice, three times. Same. I tried to at least get there a couple times a week and meet with my guys and meet with my students and, um, you know, talk to them, talk, talk to them about DS, talk to them, you know, you know, what it's like to, you know, to, to be an agent and what's expected of you. And, uh, and then when we had senior DS agents come to Fletzy, I tried to, you know, basically get them all together and, and, you know, share information with these new guys to let them know what they were, you know, what, what was, what was coming for them, you know, what was their future going to be like? So I enjoyed it. And then from there, I went back to Miami and was the assistant special agent in charge of Miami for three years there. And then I closed on my career as the uh, DS liaison at um, Indo-Pacific Command in Honolulu. Okay. So, but, um, you know, I did 13 UNGAs. I was the, uh, I, uh, I had the, um, the luck of working as the agent in charge for the foreign minister of Bahrain like five times at, at, at UNGA, at the UN General Assembly. So, you know, he was, he was this guy, a great guy, really nice guy, weighed over 300 pounds, big guy. Um, so we had a couple of events with him. Like, uh, I don't know if you ever heard about the the Turkish, the Turks, the Turks fighting at, at the uh, UN General Assembly. I, I heard about it while I was in DS, and then I heard you tell a little bit uh, on the uh, on the the was the, the Teamcast podcast or whatever. So yeah, yeah. I, I think okay. we can't we can't let this one go. Uh, we can't get off of this before, until you tell that story. So please. So yeah, it was uh, it was an interesting uh, turn of events. I mean. Um, 
So the big event was that uh, Mahmoud Abbas, the head of the Palestinian Authority, was going to declare independence from Israel. So that was a that was a huge huge event, and he was going to make a speech at the UN. So all of the you know all of the Arab countries are you know it's a it's a big deal. It's um so. Abbas makes his speech. Have you have you ever been to the UN? Have you been inside? Yeah, or? yeah I've done uh, probably five or six. Yeah. Okay, so you know, like when the guy uh, when when the foreign minister or whoever speaks, they come out that back door and everybody greets them. Yeah. Well, it's uh, everybody that you can imagine is there to, to greet Mahmoud Abbas, including my guy, the foreign minister of of um, of Bahrain, and uh, and it's like a football scrum. It's like we can't get out of the mess after, after uh, congratulating Abbas. And the foreign minister of Bahrain is a big football fan. He went to college in Texas and he's a Dallas Cowboys fan. We can't, you know, I'm trying to get him through. Finally, he turns around to me and says, Steve, let's do this. I will be your offensive line and you get behind me and I will push our way through. <laughs> and I get, I got my hand on his back and he, he basically plows people over because he's a big guy. So we get through that. I'm like, this is a first, you know. I'm <laughs> a foreign minister plowing people over and gets me through. Anyways, so we go into this bilateral room for a bilateral meeting. He's going to meet with the foreign minister of Pakistan. So the, the bilateral room is pretty big, and it's it's split up into couches over here and couches over there. So the foreign minister of Bahrain is over on this side. He's sitting in the couch with the. Uh, foreign minister of Pakistan and they're talking, they're doing their thing. And I'm kind of just standing off to the side, you know, doing what you do when you do protection. And next thing you know, I hear this big um, clamor, you know, outside the bilat room and it comes a boss, Mahmoud Abbas, and he's going to go on the other side. And I've got two, two DS agents with him, Justin Rowan and Tom Baker. I don't know if you know either one of those guys. Yeah, I know Baker. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so they're with him. <laughs> And uh, so they're just standing there with him, and he's sitting in a chair, and here come the Turks, you know, Erdogan, President Erdogan of Turkey, apparently wants to have a bilat with him, and the Turks are coming through. Now, their advance agent, you know, we have the diamonds, you know, so forth, but their advance agent, when he walks, he walks with his hand like this. And if you're in his way, he will just shove you out of his way, because I know that, because it almost happened to me, like, a couple of days earlier. These Turks, were, they were, you know. So to add some clarity, any, this is not the Secret Service advance agent. You're talking about the Turkish advance agent. Turkish, Turkish advance Turkish. agent, yeah. exactly, yeah. Anyway, he's coming in, and there's a UN security guy, private, you know, he's dressed in a suit and tie, this Romanian guy who's been there forever. I know him. I've been in the UN so many times. We know each other. I don't know his name, but we see each other. Hey, you know, we know each other. He's a good guy, so, and he's really easy going. He's chasing them down. And he goes to, what had happened is the Turks had started a fight during Abbas's speech. I didn't see it, but they had started a fight in the, um, in the seating area. They started a fight there with the, with the UN security guys. And um, he's basically, so this UN security guy in the suit and tie is, is yelling at them. And one of the Turkish guys grabs him by the lapel of his suit, throws him down, like just pulls him right down. He goes down. And as he gets back up, he punches the, the Turkish guy right in the face. And it's like a, it's a brawl right there in the bilateral room. So 
and the pro I see I see it unfolding. I get I get and behind the couch where my guy is standing, and I'm pushing these guys off the couch, you know, because the the scrum it was a scrum at this point, and now it's over at the couch. So I'm pushing these guys off the couch, and I'm looking backwards at my foreign minister. I'm like, sir, we gotta go. And he's like, oh, oh, I see the Turk think the Turks think it's the Ottoman Empire again. Okay, <laughs> you know, he was funny. Yeah. <laughs> So he gets up and I just, I, I push him off, I get him and I bring him out and I get him in the car and we're gone. So we're out of it. But what, it, what ends up happening is, so this fight goes on in the bilat room. They break up the fight. Tom and Justin grab a boss and bring him out to the drop area and bring him out to his limo. And as and apparently they didn't know, but the Turks were following them down to the limo. So uh, as Tom is letting, as Tom is putting a boss into the limo, he closes the door and he gets to, he gets, he turns around to get into the right front seat and there's a Turkish agent sitting in his seat. And, and there was Turks on the other side of the limo trying to let Erdogan into the other side of the limo. So Tom, Pulls the, pulls the Turkish guy out, throws him out, and then a, a brawl ensues down there. And we have two DS agents at the drop at every younger. Sure. They're there the whole time. You see them every time you come in. And this particular year, it was probably the two biggest guys at the New York field office. So I guess them two guys and all of Tom and uh, Justin's detail got in this brawl right at the drop. And it's where that big white tent is, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah. But I, to this day, I, I cannot believe that no diplomat did not have a cell phone out filming that because I guess it was a knockdown, throwdown. Because a few days later, I ran into the two guys, you know, who worked the drop and they're like, they're like it was unbelievable, Steve. You know, we, it was like, it was a brawl, you know. <laughs> what, what year was that, Steve? Oh, okay, let me think. Um, I want to say I was still a supervisor in Miami. I want to say that was, see, I was, I want to say it was like 2011, 2011, okay. I think. Yeah. Okay. So the, 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 the quick finger on the iPhone was not as prevalent then as, as, as it yeah, is now. You know, or, 2011, you know. 2012. I'm pretty sure it was 2011, yeah. but I really, yeah, I'm, I'm shocked that like, what was it? The iPhone one or two out at that time, or three, or I don't know. <laughs> Probably, yeah. And and social media wasn't what it was today. I mean, it was, yeah, it was coming you know, around, so, but yeah, yeah, that's yeah, awesome. That's a, that's but but so that's classic. a legend. That's a legendary story because I, I mean, I've heard it on several occasions. I haven't heard it in depth, yeah. like detail. I just heard of it happening. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, so, sometimes, sometimes people wish like, oh, I wish that happened to us, you know? Right. <laughs> well, the next, down, the, the next year, actually, cause that was in the fall. So spring comes around and now there's going to be the NATO summit in Chicago. I don't know if you remember that, but mm. there was lots of demos and, um, it was a crazy, um, atmosphere because there were a lot of, uh, demonstrations and against NATO and whatever. And um, I get a phone call from Tom Baker, who now works at um, Dignitary Protection. And he's like, hey, we're going to deal for you. We want you to take the Turks. And I'm like, oh, no, I don't want the Turks. And I'm like, no, we really think you can do it. You know, you got that personality, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, I'm like okay, if I get the Turks, then I'm going to get Bahrain again for UNGA. And he's like, okay, deal. So I was like, all right. So here I am with the NATO summit with the Turks. And I briefed the detail. I said, look, guys, 
you know, we're going to do our job, but if these guys, they start with us, you know, we're going to, we're going to look up, we're going to take care of each other. This isn't going to, you know, we're not going to let them try to, you know, run the show here. And uh, the foreign minister was a guy, Dava Taglu, and he was just a big, he, he wanted to go for walks. He wanted to do everything. And I was like, look, sir, you know, there's demonstrations all through the city. We're being told no, no foot movements, you know, because they were concerned about you, us being, you know, you know, they were throwing paint bombs and all this, you know, they were doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And he was, he wasn't happy with me and uh, for that. But then we ended up having this Turkish day uh, celebration at, at the Four Seasons where he was staying and uh, the Turkish president was there. So we got, we have the Turkish foreign minister's detail. We have the Turkish president's detail. I am the agent in charge of the Turkish foreign minister. I'm standing right next to him and the advance agent for the Turkish president comes up behind me and gives me a forearm to my back for I, to this day, I have no idea why, but he slams me pretty good. I, you know, I go forward, I turn around and I'm like, I'm ready. I don't know. I didn't, I had no idea who did it, you know? So I turn around and it's a big Turkish guy and he's yelling and I'm yelling right back. So I go and shove and then my whole detail, <laughs> my advance agent and my shift leader come running up and the three of us are on this guy, like, you know, and uh, I was just like, I love you guys. You guys are all right, you know. But to this day, I don't know what he, he's like. I'm with President. I'm like, look, asshole. I'm, excuse me. <laughs> look, I'm with. I'm with the. Uh, I'm with the, your foreign minister. Why are you attacking me? You know, it never made any sense. Yeah. But it goes from there. I'll tell you one more quick story about this whole event. We're gonna. The Turkish foreign minister was gonna have a meeting with um, the German uh, German Chancellor Merkel. So me and the Turkish AIC go to this meeting with the Germans before, before the uh, event. And it's going to be at her and her suite, you know, her hotel where she's staying in Chicago. So we go there the day before and the, Turk the Germans are very precise, you know, stereotypically precise. The only people that would come to the meeting is Steve and you. And he points at the Turkish guy. No other agents will be allowed up into our floor. So I look at the Turkish, you got that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I got it. Okay, just me and you, right? Yep, mm -hmm. next day, we get out of the cars, we're going into the hotel, we walk into the elevator with, with, with the Turkish foreign minister and the elevator fills up with all these Turkish security guys. And I look at the, um, I look at the AAC, I said, what are you doing? He's like, what? I said, you know, we're going up now and I'm talking to him like, we're not, you know, they're not supposed to be in the elevator. They're not supposed to be in the elevator. You know, this isn't, this isn't going to work. And he's like, no, I must do this. This is what I have to do. You know, all right. The door opens up. Davitoglu walks out. I walk behind him. And as I'm walking out of the elevator, a brawl ensues between the Turks and the Germans. It was just like, and the AIC is looking at me like, and he's saying, can you help us, Steve? Can you help us? And I'm like, no, I'm not helping. No. I, I'm with your guy. You you handle it. I let them go, you know, but it was that it's all a show for them. It's not really about security. It's about like we're gonna show you, you know, that we're tough and we're strong. Bravado. It's yeah. Putting on a show. Like because when I get down to the nuts and bolts of security with them, you know, when I say, okay, this is what we're gonna do, and we have to do this, that, or the other thing, they didn't want to they they couldn't care, but they they wanted to show they wanted to be able to show up in force and say, hey, we're the Turks. And, you know, we're serious. 
but it was all a show. That's all it was. You know, it was never really serious about security. Yeah. It was, they're an interesting group of people. I'll just say that. I had my last detail with DS. I was out of San Diego rack. Uh, it was for Unga and it was a Turkish foreign minister. I don't know if it's the same guy. Might be. I don't recognize his name. Uh, kind of shorter, stocky, bald head. Short guy, yeah. That's yep. probably him. Yeah, it was him. And then uh, Erdogan, uh, they, they, were, they didn't do any movements together that I recall. Um, but at the, they were at the same hotel. And I think at the time he had, he had a falling out with Erdogan and there was concern for his safety from the Turks. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and, you know, don't want to touch that. Right. But, but uh, we, right. Erdogan had showed up to the hotel and there were some Turks protesting in support of Erdogan and they were going right. nuts. And the same thing and the, the, the protection detail of Erdogan could care less if they were good Turks that supported him, they were throwing people around and, and oh, yeah. uh, you know yeah. they, they they were they were aggressive and you know we walked up but 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 because of his relationship his uh his his so, spoiled relationship with Erdogan from from my understanding he just kind of walked by and stood stood away and and then made his way up uh, I don't even know yes yeah, so I don't even think they had any movements together whatsoever but oh okay uh, yeah interesting interesting stuff <laughs> so many stories out there man. Well, listen. I, know, I think I, I think we're I think we're right at two hours. Uh, we started okay. a little late, man. That, <laughs> I could talk to you more. We might have to do that. But hey, uh, tell us where we can get your book. Yeah, it's uh, Afghans Never Smile, the title of the book, and it, it can be found on Amazon. Okay, awesome. And it's so five stars on Amazon. I'll give you that plug. Five stars. You got several reviews. You're, you, you know, and, and I get uh, twenty. I get like twenty something. You, you, you got about a hundred and something there, buddy. So you're doing pretty well. So hey, man. You know what? I learned. Uh, I forget where it was at. Uh, but but I learned from politicians that you. Hey, ask. You know, they say ask. Uh, ask for someone's vote. I ask for a review. Right. If someone says, "Hey, man, got right. your book. It was great." I said, "Hey, you know, if you got some time, I'd be yeah, grateful yeah. review." And 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 they do it and. Right. I try to to give back like a lot. I take phone calls from some of these candidates. I definitely take emails. I take, uh, yeah. you know, and yeah. I remember in 2008, I imagine it's a lot worse. That's when I came through in, in 2008. Certainly when you came through that there was not a lot of info on DS and it still isn't. I know they're, they're trying to do, no, there isn't. they're trying to do there better, isn't. but I, I remember having, I wanted to do DS. Like you, you came out of the army. You said you didn't, like you weren't really familiar with it. You, you it's an opportunity. No, it looked good. I was an MSG. And uh, I, I, okay. I, I wanted to do that. I didn't know that before being an MSG. I was looking at being a Louisiana right. State Trooper, right? That's where I'm from originally. Right. And uh, it took me three tries to get in. So that's all I wanted. Um, and I remember the anxiety and the waiting and everything else. And, yeah. and so, you know, it's, 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 I'm not completely selfless. Uh, obviously, I'm, I'm trying to sell a book, but, uh, but I don't, uh, you know, I take calls from people and help out as best I can. And, and I think that has helped with the reviews right. is what I'm getting at. But uh, but yeah, I mean, the, the, the team house helped a lot. I, I ended up doing a, um, a thing with the uh, Foreign Service Fraternity at George Washington University because someone there had seen the team house uh, uh, podcast. And then uh, I went to my alma mater, Franklin Paris University, and spent a day there talking about, you know, my career, my book. So it's been nice. You know, I definitely have done a lot of talking like, you know, like you with young people and, you know, people who are really interested in, you know, in a career with diplomatic security or the foreign service, you know, so it's been, it's been great. It really has. I think our books have similarities and, and, and they're a bit unique in that like yours is specifically about operating 
you know, you touch on when you started and everything and about DS right. and but operating in high threat environments and particularly those two, you know, Pakistan, and Afghanistan. Right. Mine is, and I say this from the beginning, you know, I, I spent a little less than 10 years there. Mine is from a ground level agent. Like what does an FS6 do? You know, what are we doing? By the time I'm an FS3, I'm only eight years in and I'm running protective ops, you know, in her bill, you know, right. and, and you get yeah. a lot of responsibility fast. And I try to relate that in the book. Um, you know, there's certainly guys like yourself with 20 year careers that have many more stories and much more experience than I, but, uh, but it's relatable, uh, to, to the new guys coming in, you know, and, and so, yeah, absolutely, uh, yeah. you know, but it's been fun. Okay. It's, it's been a fun ride, but I'm thankful for you to come on. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to stop the recording here in a little bit. So hang tight, but I want to chat with you after, man. Thank you very much for coming on. Hey, thank you for the opportunity. It was an honor. And, uh, Thank you for what you're doing. I mean, I think it's incredible what you got going on here. So appreciate it. Yes, sir. Thank you. Steve Silva, everyone. Thank you, Steve, for coming on. As mentioned, Steve has a book. You can get the book on Amazon. Afghans Never Smile. It's sitting at five stars. Go out and check it out and uh, support this good man. All right, other items. Those of you who are interested in becoming a DSS agent, I, I spent a lot of time putting out information. I've developed a number of resources to support your research and to help maybe make your decision guide you along the way. So number one, YouTube. I put out 20 or so videos over the last year plus discussing life as a DSS agent, living overseas, leadership, family concerns uh, for those when you live overseas and so on. So go check it out. Just search my name, Cody Perron, and uh, you'll see a video of me sitting there, uh, hopefully not in too much of a monotone voice, uh, just uh, answering questions from, from people that submit them and discussing all those different topics. Facebook, if you're on Facebook, I have a Facebook group, and I don't think there's any like it in any other federal agency or anyone doing this, but it's it's called Joining Becoming a DSS Agent, uh, where retired, former, and current uh, uh, diplomatic security special agents of all, of all levels interact with candidates or with people that are aspiring to be diplomatic security special agents. They ask questions. We have some group experts. We have some people that are group experts that that, that uh, can that comment uh, on on uh the different questions and I think uh, it's pretty interesting and pretty helpful. So go check it out. Just fill out the, uh, the, the questions. I need to know who, who it is that's trying to get into the group uh, and then I'll go ahead and approve you. Uh, of course, I have an Instagram page off the X underscore Inc. INC where I post about DSS, global security, personal safety, just about anything security and safety related. And uh, again, that's off the X underscore Inc. I also have a book. It's been out for a few years. It's called Agents Unknown. Still selling pretty well. Uh, Agents Unknown, True Stories of Life as a Special Agent in the Diplomatic Security Service. It is available in paperback on Amazon, Barnes & Noble online, in digital format, in iBooks and Kindle, in audio format, in, on Audible and Apple Books. Uh, you can also get it on my website, CodyParon.com. There I also sell uh, hats, t-shirts, patches, stickers, uh, uh, social medias on that page. Um, but the hats, but all of the other items I'm selling, they're off the X ink. So they have the logo or they might have high threat protection, uh, you know, uh, design. Uh, so go check it out. Uh, if you're interested in supporting, I oftentimes have people ask, Hey, how can I support you putting out a lot of information? We appreciate it. Go buy something. Uh, if you don't like it right now, I'm going to be putting other stuff out. I'm going to be putting other hats out. I'll be putting other t-shirts designs out. Um, and you can always buy the book. So feel free to check it out. Um, if you do buy from me directly, I'll throw in a little something extra. I always do. So uh, that's that's part of it if you buy the book because I know, you know, we have Amazon, Amazon Prime makes it really easy for you to buy and get delivered. But I put a little tender love and care in my packages. So there you go. 
uh, that's it. If y'all have questions, you can send them to me on my social media. Send me a note at info at codyperron.com. I do respond. I always get back to folks. I'm slow sometimes. As I always say, life is busy. Or if I forget, uh, you ping me again. All right, It's not intentional. Please hit me up. Uh, I'm here to help. That does happen on occasion. But 